Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Daniel Smith. With us today is Mark Hopwood, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at SWANEE, the University of the South. And I think I know that name from somewhere else, but I'm not sure where. And he's here to discuss love and moral value. Mark Hopwood, whoever you are, welcome. Thank you. It's It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. Especially the earlier episodes. I think actually they've got better since you got rid of that original co-host. I think, I think he was dragging the whole thing down. Okay, so the topic of this episode is love and moral value. And I think to a lot of people that's going to sound like two different things. So on the one hand, there's moral value. Think of that as like ethical obligations, like I'm obliged to help someone who's in trouble or in need, or I'm obliged to return a book that I borrowed from the library, things like that. And then there's love on the other hand, so what I feel for my spouse. Um, And these probably to a lot of people seem like very different things. You know, love is something private. It's just between me and my spouse. But moral value is something connected to the community. It's not a private thing. It's a public thing. We all have a stake in meeting our ethical obligations. So what's the relation between these two things that are the topic of this episode? Right. Yeah, good. So people do tend to make this distinction between the two realms, if you like, of love and moral value. And it's often thought that some of the characteristics that you've talked about in connection with moral value go together. So that's to say, people think that moral value has this inescapable quality. So I'm not just obligated to do something because I feel like it. Somehow the obligation is independent of me, whether I feel like it or not. People have taken that to be connected to this other feature of moral value. That's to say it's universality. So these values are supposed to apply to everyone. So they apply to all of us, no matter what our particular desires, our particular projects, whatever. And then love is taken to be something different. But I think there's a kind of problem that arises here that has occurred to many people, which is that it seems like at least some of our relationships of love, like, for example, the relationship between a parent and a child, doesn't just have to do with things that I have reason to do if I feel like it. It it can seem like, in our relationships with those we love, there's something inescapable about the obligations that we have to them. But at the same time, we don't tend to want to say these obligations are universal. That's to say that just anyone has reason to act in this way towards the people that we love. So there's something personal about these obligations, but also something inescapable about them. And that's a problem that's occurred to a lot of philosophers, and it's posed a kind of difficulty for how we think about the relationship between love and moral value. And that's a problem that I'm interested in. 
So that's a very interesting and complex case, the relation between a parent and a child or another private, close, intimate relationship. And it does seem like there are special kinds of interests that I have in virtue of standing in loving relationships to people. But I wonder, are those interests really moral interests or is that just another project I have? It might be an inescapable project. I mean, if I have a child, I'm parenting and I can do that better or worse. But is that goodness or badness of my parenting really a moral virtue or is this just another difference of sphere that you alluded to before? So I want to be relatively agnostic about exactly how we apply the terms here. So if, if someone wants an understanding of morality that's specified in very narrow terms to exclude these kind of relationships, then I'm fine with that. We can use the terms however we like. I do think that this kind of relationship, whatever term we want to apply to it, is hugely central to our lives. A lot of our relationships are like this. And as I say, I think it poses a real philosophical problem because it's not, I mean, you talked about, so my relationship with my child being just another project that I have. So one way that you might think about our close personal relationships with those whom we love is that those relationships, the value that we see in those people somehow depends on our particular desires and feelings and projects. So it's because I feel a certain way towards this person that they're valuable and not otherwise. So one way of saying this would be to say that love is a way of projecting value onto something that doesn't otherwise have it. Now, I certainly do think that sometimes in life we do project value onto things that wouldn't otherwise have it. So I think that's true of soccer teams, for example. So I happen to value the results of Burnley Football Club. They really matter to me. But I'm prepared to gram that those results only matter, in a sense, because I make them matter. They matter because I care about them, not because there's anything in them that demands a response on my part. I care about them. I make them my team. So they matter to me. So I think I have reason to go and find out what that result was on Saturday. So I do think there are cases like that. But I think there are reasons to think that our close, loving relationships aren't like that. So I don't think it's plausible to think that, for example, my child has the kind of value that she has only because I give her that value. That's to say the value that I see in her is just a value that I project onto her. And were I to stop feeling the same way, she would immediately cease to have that value. There's something that seems wrong intuitively about that to me. There's something about those kind of relationships that makes me want to say, no, when I see this immense value in my child, I'm really seeing something that's her and not me, something that's there in her that I'm not just projecting onto her, but something that I'm responding to in my love. So my love is a response to some kind of value in her. But that still leaves us with a problem because I would grant, and I think anyone would grant, I don't expect everyone to see her in the same way. So I do think that there's a value there that's independent of me. I didn't just project it onto her. She didn't just get that value because I gave it to her, like I gave Burnley Football Club a certain kind of value. But on the other hand, I don't think that it makes sense for me to expect 
everyone else in the world to see my daughter in just the way that I do. In fact, that would be kind of weird. So we have this, I think, really important problem. How do we make sense of this kind of value? It's a kind of value I've called something in between. On the one hand, these universal values that everyone's supposed to recognize. And on the other hand, values that we merely project onto the world. How do we make sense of these in-between cases? Okay, so now instead of having a taxonomy of two kinds of value, we have a taxonomy of three kinds of value. We've expanded it. And we've got one kind of value that's projected onto something, in the metaphor we've been using, and two other kinds of value that are both in the thing itself. So a parent's duty to care for their child seems to stem from the child itself. It's not something the parent can just sort of decide to take on. But then my duty, I don't know, not to steal from a charity, also seems to stem from the charity itself. Uh, so we have anyway, two kinds of value that uh, stem from the things themselves rather than kinds of value that are projected onto something. Is there anything else that these two kinds of value have in common? I think so. So I think there's more we can say. I mean, one thing that I want to say just in parentheses, as it were, is that I do think that parents can be understood to have straightforwardly moral obligations towards their children. So, you know, for example, if I was just to go and leave my child in a box on the street, there's a clear sense in which I'm violating a moral obligation that everyone has, right? So clearly I stand in that kind of relationship to my child. There are all kinds of obligations that I have just by virtue of being the caretaker of this child. What I want to say, though, this third kind of value is that there's more than that to my relationship with my child, right? It's not just that I recognize, oh, well, it turns out I'm the person who's taking care of this child, so I have this standard set of obligations. I see a kind of value in her. I, I see her as immensely valuable in this way that seems to go beyond any kind of minimal set of obligations that I have towards her. You want her to have a wonderful life and you want her to have a great education and all the opportunity you never had and all that stuff is beyond merely taking care of somebody. Right. right. I think she's the most important and beautiful and wonderful thing in the world. And that demands explanation. How is it that it makes sense to me to feel that way towards her? So here's my suggestion. I think that we can clarify these categories somewhat by thinking again about this distinction between things that are valuable just because I project their value onto them, and things like my child that seem to have this independent value. So I use a distinction between what I call closed descriptions and open-ended descriptions. So I think some things can be valued under a closed description, and some things can be valued under an open-ended description. And I think that the things that we project value onto, we value under a closed description, Things like our children, we value under open-ended descriptions. So here's how it's supposed to work. Let's say that I want some vanilla ice cream. There I have a desire. And it's a desire whose object can be captured under a closed description. That's to say, if I tell you I want some vanilla ice cream, I am giving you a set of criteria that all kinds of different objects could meet. And any object that meets those criteria, any object that qualifies as vanilla ice cream, qualifies as the object of my desire. So, for example, you go out, you get me vanilla ice cream in a cone, you've got me what I wanted. Great. You go out and get me vanilla ice cream in a tub, you've also got me what I wanted. That's something else that qualifies as meeting my desire. So there are all kinds of things in the world that would fulfill the criteria for being what I want. 
That's what I mean by saying that the object of my desire can be captured under a closed description. I can tell you exactly what it is about this thing that makes it meet my desire. It's that it's vanilla ice cream. Ice cream that's vanilla. Now, I think that our relationships with those we love are quite different. So if you ask me to say what's valuable about my daughter, well, I can say all kinds of things. I can talk about her appearance. I can talk about the funny, gurgly noises that she makes. I can even talk about um, all kinds of different aspects of it. I can come up with a whole list. I could talk for half the day about the things that I find valuable about my daughter. But it would be odd to think that in describing the value that my daughter has, I'm giving you a list, a set of criteria that could be met by any other individual And if that individual did meet those criteria, I would value them in the same way. So I'm not saying anyone whose hair curls in this particular way and who makes this particular gurgly sound qualifies as someone I love. It's not like I love anyone who has those particular characteristics. What I'm trying to do when I give you that list of characteristics is not to give you a list of criteria that any object could satisfy. I'm not giving you a closed description. I'm giving you an open-ended description. That's to say, I'm giving you a limited and partial and incomplete description of the value of this particular individual, where it's only this particular individual that could have this kind of value. Yeah, I think that's quite intuitive. I mean, it's quite intuitive that if I'm in love with my spouse, it's very difficult to sort of, even if like via a really long description, maybe like several paragraphs or something, it really seems like no matter how detailed my like characterization of why it is that I love my spouse is, that's not going to exhaust why I love my spouse. Um, and I think a clear indication of this is suppose I say, ah, well, you know, I, I love my spouse because uh, whatever, she has beautiful doe eyes and she's really good at solving differential equations and she has just a, the most charming sense of humor ever. It's not like if you came along, kidnapped my spouse, replaced her with somebody else who was also great at those three things and has beautiful doe eyes that I, I wouldn't be upset because I had somebody with the same features. I mean, obviously I'd be upset. The idea that we love somebody for their unique individuality seems pretty intuitive. Right. And if you take my vanilla ice cream away, but immediately replace it with one that's identical in the respects that matter to me, then, I mean, I might complain because... Why did you do that? That was a really odd thing to do. But fundamentally, I'm not too bothered. I still have the thing that I wanted. It's a different example of this form of value. But okay, it's the same amount of vanilla ice cream as I had before. Right, as you say, that kind of replaceability just doesn't seem to apply in, in cases of love. So you might ask, well, what's the relevance of this? What does this help us to understand? And I think that one thing that it helps us to understand is the particular form of value that this third option gives us. And that's to say, this third option, I think, that we've been talking about, the kind of object that is valued under an open-ended description, that gives us a way of understanding what it is for something to be valued as a particular object. So not as an instance of any more general kind, but as a particular in itself. Now, I think that's a very important aspect of our close personal relationships, the kinds of examples that we've been talking about, so parent-child cases or spouse cases. But I think 
and this is where we begin to come back to the question of moral value, I think that it also has significance for our understanding of our moral relationships with others. I'm curious, could you expand on that a little further? Because it, there's something intuitive about the idea that I do have moral duties and there are moral values in the people I just meet on the street, just complete strangers about whom I know nothing. And it seems like they're, I don't know, maybe it's right to say that I value them under a closed description. They're just people. And you, you're supposed to respect people and you're not supposed to murder them and you're supposed to like help them when they're in need and that sort of thing. It seems like I just don't need to know very much. And moreover, it seems like I can specify pretty exactly and in a closed description kind of way what it is about them that demands that of me. They're people. Is that not right? I think that is right for a number of cases. So I think that the moral realm is a very diverse one. I think we have all kinds of different obligations to others. And in certain cases, I think it's absolutely right to say that the moral value that I should be seeing in others can be captured under a closed description. So for example, let's say that I am the owner of a large company and I'm thinking about how I ought to treat my employees. I need to be thinking about them under a closed description. That's to say as employees with certain rights and I need to be thinking of myself in terms of certain responsibilities and we can capture all of that under a closed description. We can say in virtue of these particular aspects of their status, these workers deserve precisely this kind of treatment. So you ought to be paying them for their work and not trying to get out of it as you are doing because of this and this and this. So I think there are all kinds of cases where we can think about moral value quite systematically. We can think about the value that others have under a closed description. And I think that's entirely appropriate. I also think, however, that there's an aspect of our moral relationships with others that goes beyond that. So I think it is possible for me to see another person as valuable in virtue of this particular characteristic that they share with all of these other people. I also think it's possible for us to see others as morally valuable, not in virtue of any particular characteristic they share with all these other people, but as particular individuals. So it's possible for me, not just in my relationships with those I'm close to, but it's possible for me more broadly to see someone as valuable as a particular individual, not in virtue of their possession of any particular set of valuable characteristics. So your example of the employee-employer relationship seems to be interesting because there are cases where it seems really appropriate to think in terms of closed descriptions and to think of people's values under closed descriptions. And that has to do, in this case, with like fairness, with treating everybody equally, and also with setting up like a policy that will be able to be put into practice pretty immediately because you just have a general rule and then people are treated in accordance with the rule. And that seems really valuable and appropriate. So given that moral policies are often really a great tool for us to use, what's the nature of the 
supplement or the additional observation you're making that not all of our value relationships are like that. Why is that really important to take home? Good. Yeah. So I think it's right to say that certainly recent philosophy and also right recent discussion beyond academic philosophy has tended to take on this kind of legislative metaphor for morality. So we think about morality in terms of rules, principles, laws. And as I've said, I think that in many cases, that's appropriate to do. It's appropriate for us to try and formulate principles, to try and come up with policies. What I think is also true, and what I think people have recognized, is that there are various kinds of limitations to the legislative metaphor. There are various kinds of things that laws and policies seem to leave out that still have moral importance. So here's a couple. I mean, one worry that you might have about moral theories that seek to identify these specific characteristics in virtue of which other people deserve our moral attention is that however you specify the characteristics, it ends up looking like we're going to miss some people out who we don't want to miss out. So if we talk about, for example, people being valuable in virtue of their rational dignity or something like that, people start to have serious worries about whether such a moral theory really covers the obligations we take ourselves to have to those whose capacities for rationality and reasoning are irreparably damaged. We seem to take ourselves to have obligations there that don't, at least immediately, appear to be covered by that kind of theory. Um, It would take a while to go through all the examples, but my thought is, almost as a kind of structural point, that however we try to codify or formalize the kind of value that we see in others, we're going to capture something and there's going to be something else that we miss out. There's going to be part of us that wants to say, yes, human beings are valuable in virtue of that. That rational dignity is something to be valued. But here's someone who lacks it, who we still take to have moral value. And of course, you can always say, well, there must be some way of amending the description so that we get the right one that includes all of the people we want to include and has all of the substance that we want it to have. I don't think that we're going to find such a theory precisely because the beings that we're dealing with, human beings, have a kind of value that can't be captured under a closed description. Again, it's like these close personal relationships. We can say a lot about the value that other human beings have. We can say a great deal about it. And we can formalize and systematize areas of our obligations to others. But my thought is, at least, and I think this is the experience of a lot of people, any such formalizational theory tends to leave something out that we want to retain. So I think that's one really important reason to take this line of thought seriously. So does that mean that this new picture of the kinds of value that there are that you're pushing is, like, unimplementable in terms of public policy? Maybe in a certain sense, yes. Right. I mean, there's certainly what I wouldn't want to be taken to be saying is, on the level of moral philosophy, that we should replace all of our other moral concepts with the concept of love and this idea of irreducible particularity and that... These are the only terms in which we should be thinking about our moral problems. That seems like a disaster. It would be a disaster, I think, in the moral case, and it would certainly be a disaster on the public policy level, right? If we tried to craft policy on the basis of an understanding of everyone as a uniquely 
irreducibly valuable snowflake, then we wouldn't be able to craft any kind of useful policy at all. So clearly both in our public policy and just in our individual everyday moral dealings, we have to have policies, rules, laws, principles. So I don't want to say that we can do without any of that. But I do think that we need to pay real attention to the aspect of both our moral lives and our political lives that seem to escape the legislative metaphor. And we need to think seriously, if you like, about what it means to take that part of our lives seriously. And I think that what is not acceptable is the view that I think some philosophers are drawn to, that anything that lies outside of rules and principles is in the realm of what I've called projected value. So is in the realm of things that get their value just because we projected onto them. And is in the realm of you know, what in the political case is deemed like the private. So we, you know, we separate out the public and the private. I think that we need to take seriously the idea that in certain parts of our moral lives, and to some extent in certain parts of our political lives, we need to be attending to others, and this is another part of my view that we've not really talked about, we need to be attending to others as we attend to objects of beauty. That's to say, to attend to an object of beauty is to attend to something that's making a demand on me. You know, so I think this is a controversial view that I have that I would have to argue for, but I think that beautiful things make demands on us. They demand certain kind of responses. I can feel like this beautiful piece of music demands a better response than I'm capable of giving to it now. I can understand the idea of becoming better at appreciating this piece of music, becoming better at appreciating the beauty of the natural world. So I think we recognise what it is in the aesthetic case, in the case of beauty, to work at getting better at appreciating the beauty, the value of particular things. I think we need to think more seriously about what that looks like in the moral and the political case. I mean, what kind of, and I think it's going to involve a certain kind of creativity and imagination on our part. And I do think, to go back to the question of implementation, the sort of task that I'm imagining is what Iris Murdoch, who's a philosopher I'm very influenced by, calls the endless task of love. I think one way to make sense of that idea is to think about the object of love as an irreducibly particular object, one whose value can't be captured under a closed description, and so one that's going to demand this work to figure out what in response to this particular individual, this particular situation is being demanded of me. What you're saying about relating to a particular individual as a sort of endless form of work is really interesting, but I'm wondering about how someone can tell, either in their own case or in another person's case, whether they're really engaging in that. I'm wondering about a sort of circumstance in which I think I'm valuing my spouse in virtue of his or her intrinsic particularity and the value that carries with it. But it turns out that, you know, once he or she changes in certain ways and no longer has various characteristics, I'm really just not attached anymore. And it turns out that my valuing of them was just because they fit a certain bill or a certain description that I was attracted to for whatever reason. How do I know that I'm not in that case? And what's the difference between valuing somebody because they meet certain characteristics and valuing them for their intrinsic individuality? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think the the short answer is we don't know a lot of the time, and that's the problem. Or we convince ourselves that we do know, and so I think there's actually a problem here that we meet in all kinds of areas of our lives that has the same kind of structure. So that's to say, when an object that we are valuing under what we take to be an open-ended description slowly and subtly becomes an object that we are valuing under a closed description. One place in which I think this is quite clear is in theology, in the religious case. So what tends to be called idolatry. So you, you might think of religious language. I mean, everyone thinks of religious language, I think, as the attempt to capture this being God that is beyond our understanding. You know, no one thinks that we can just say precisely what is good or valuable about God. So religious scriptures and language is an attempt to gesture at this thing beyond our understanding. What's idolatry? Well, idolatry is when the attention of the believer is no longer on God, but is on the image of God that they have set up through their description. So I come to value this thing that I have created, and God drops out of the picture as no longer no longer necessary. God's not necessary when you, if you've got idolatry. I think we have a very similar case in our personal relationships, right? I think that it's this person that I love, but then it turns out that over time I have come to love this particular thing that I get out of this person, and that it turns out, well, I could equally get out of this other person and with much less aggro. So you know, there you might talk about objectification. I mean, I think that's what we have in mind there. I think it's also true in our aesthetic responses there's a similar kind of problem where, again, I might think that I am responding to the beauty of this particular form of art, but really there's just a particular thing that I want out of it. Maybe I, um, I want to think of myself in a certain way and this piece of art is just convenient for helping me to do that. And again, it's not the particular work of art that's important anymore. It's what I want to get out of it. So I've turned it into an object that I'm valuing under a, under a closed description. And again, so now the particular work of art is no longer necessary. It's just me and my image. I think this happens all the time. I think it's, in some ways, one of the central problems facing us in all of these spheres. How do we stop our love for particular objects turning into mere desire for objects that can be captured under a closed description? I think this is, in fact, to go back to Iris Murdoch again, I think this is what Murdoch's novels are about, just in all of these different kinds of cases. So all of that is to say, a lot of the time we don't know, it's very hard to know because we have systematic ways of deceiving ourselves. I don't think there's an easy answer. I don't think there's an easy set of criteria that you can give to say which case we're in. What I think is important is that we do recognise a difference between the cases and we have an aspiration to be in one rather than the other. So I think that by thinking about the difference between these two modes of valuing, we can understand part of what we're aspiring to as, as moral agents. We're aspiring not to fall prey to what Murdoch calls fantasy. But I think it's very hard to do. Probably most of the time we're not doing it right. Mark Hopwood, the value you brought to this interview could never be brought under a closed description. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, 
slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>